Welcome to the Sleeper and the Bust. This is another off-season edition, episode number 173. I am your host, Nicholas Minix, and joining me today in place of Eno Saris is none other than Zach Sanders. He of the recent and famous author of uh, the end-of-season rankings, and specifically, most recently, the, uh, the end-of-season catcher rankings. And uh, Zach, first of all, obviously, uh, you've been a blogger a bit, a bit of time for Rotograph specifically for a while. Uh, how are you doing today? Good. How about you? Not too bad, thank you. Very much glad to have you on uh, th- this episode. Uh, talk about a number of things we could probably talk about if we get if we get enough uh, time. But we, I've, we've had some questions before about how we uh, kind of go about how how, how a, a reader might or a listener might go about um, calculating uh, what a player has earned as opposed to. It's basically the same process as when you project, like what projection you know when you evaluate what projections are going to earn but it's kind of the process in reverse but we can get we can get to that if we have time i don't I don't know if we do but that's something we're going to talk about as the off season progresses because there's certainly been some curiosity about that but certainly there are some issues uh, we want to get into specifically for this episode uh and start with some news related items and specifically first of all i just want to say uh, josh beckett uh, plans to retire uh, that's just stated something that he stated not uh, just after the dodgers loss in the uh <clears throat> in the nlds uh to st louis uh, and that's obviously uh i guess neither here nor there for i mean he's obviously in his 30s and, and had a great se- uh, kind of a bounce back season but uh, health has continued health and or performance has always kind of been a problem for him so uh, in this day and age of pitching, uh, certainly is not somebody that anybody will ha- have difficulty replacing. But uh, it's been a pretty solid career for Beckett. Uh, and uh, I always remember that uh, he was the guy who pitched that clinching game of the World Series in, was it 2003 for the Marlins uh, on short rest against the Yankees? And that was, a, I think that was a pretty impressive performance kind of very early in his career. Uh, Texas has, they are, this was kind of something reported earlier in the season uh, that this seemed likely but uh you know they're they're basically now expected to decline alex rios 2015 club options for 13 and a half million dollars uh obviously this doesn't seem like a big surprise and we've talked about on the program in the past uh, about how i mean considering that he hit <clears throat> he hit at uh, uh what is it now uh Omni Ballpark or some some crazy name uh, Globe Life Park, excuse me, for the Rangers, their, their home, uh, and he, and the, so power performance was kind of down for him. Uh, also, he's on the wrong side of thirty with speed kind of aging not very well. Uh, this doesn't. I mean, is this type of player? This is certainly not a player you keep in the top fifty, even though he's probably drafted as such. But does uh, Rio strike you as a guy that you're kind of going to stay away from in future years? Does a lot depend on where he. Uh, or at least, I'm sorry, I, I should say specifically just next year, but is this a guy that you stay away from kind of next season, or does it depend a lot on his environment? I mean, it didn't seem to affect him too much this season, but he spent a lot of time recently in really good home run ballparks with kind of mixed results as far as the power goes. Yeah, I mean, he's never played in a pitcher's park. It's always been Toronto and then Chicago, which is, of course, the greatest hitter's park, and then Texas. So, I mean, we've never seen him in a less – favorable environment and even then he had four home runs this year so <laughs> no matter pretty much where he goes you can't project any kind of power and just because he hit 280 this year and stole 17 bases he was still the 49th ranked outfielder in the league so i mean it's pretty scarce sometimes you look at those numbers and think that's not a guy i want but in some cases it's a guy you're going to have uh, i'm not looking at him as a starter next year in any kind of standard league especially not an OBP league since his walk rates really have not been good since the mid-2000s. And unless he ends up going back to Chicago or Toronto or coming back to Texas, which is probably unlikely, he's never going to really add anything anymore with home runs. And so it's just you're getting stolen bases. It's a guy that maybe you have your team drafted a certain way. We're looking at stolen bases late, and he's a guy you get for a dollar late in a draft. Uh, probably ALN only guy for sure just because of he's going to play every day most likely, so you're going to have him in your lineup. But as far as standard and mixed leagues go, most you bid a dollar and hope he comes back. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think he'll certainly come. I mean, 
I'll be interested to see. Basically, I think the question becomes for me because I think, you know, there seemed to be this kind of for a while and every other year phenomenon with him that was not really a phenomenon, of course, but sometimes it was related to health with him. I think that was kind of easily overlooked as a why, but like, you know, he would have a really good year and then a really bad year. And a lot of it was more so tied to batting average or power. And now, and the stolen base production seemed to be kind of a constant. And then he steals 40 some bases last year. And then, and and it's like, wow, this guy really wants to run. I mean, it's just yeah, entering his age 34 season and coming off a, a year of uh, fewer than 20 stolen bases. It seems really hard to rely on him for anything. Yeah, like you said, I mean, he is he is not a starting mixed league outfielder, at least in, at least in like 10 team or 12 team leagues. Um, but, you know, and in and, and an OBP league, like in, in Tower Wars, like, you know, and I play in like that's I mean, he is going to look like a really bad asset, I think, to go after. The only thing, it's like I, I can't help but think that he could run into 10 home runs accidentally, and so it may not look so bad. Uh, I mean, I think if if he came up for a buck, I would top it too, simply because, you know, he's kind of done it before. But it doesn't, like, there's not a lot of upside. I think that we pretty much have to rule that out from now on, is that upside seems unlikely. Um and it's weird because just like a year or two ago, he seemed like a really, I mean, I mean, based on this 20 home run, 40 stolen base season, or basically, wow, it was like, wow, what a, it, just such a, uh, such a quick crash, it seems like to me. Um, but uh, he's now, I mean, next year again, age 34 season, doesn't really look like uh, he's going to be a, a super reliable fantasy asset. Uh, St. Louis also this this now this news is really interesting to me because uh, we've talked about Adam Wainwright a couple of times on the show before uh, at times kind of wondering if if health was going to be again a kind of concern for him uh, creeping back into the picture picture especially obviously earlier in the season he experienced some discomfort uh, in the right elbow uh, it turns out I guess St. Louis is now saying that First of all, the, they're preparing Lance Lynn to be ready in case Wainwright is not ready to make that first uh, that start in Game One of the NLCS coming up on Saturday, uh, and that I guess there still appears to be kind of something that St. Louis has probably kind of managed as opposed. To, I mean, Wainwright performance-wise was uh, really quite good for most of the second half. Uh, had kind of a, a a slow start there, where it almost seemed like a dead arm period for him in the second half. But overall, the numbers were still really good. Um, velocity has never been a great asset for him. So you can't look at that and say that there's, you know, there's, there were no great indicators of saying that the performance was an issue, but this, this is the kind of thing that more so concerns me going into next season and uh, hearing uh, the analysts on, or at least uh, I should say the, the reporters on the, on different networks talking about his, uh, his pitch usage uh, specifically, I think with the cutter and uh, <clears throat> discussing how he's continuing to def- to feel this discomfort, uh, or it occasionally comes up with t- some tendonitis, inflammation, uh, what have you, and also uh, to kind of continue, well, basically to continue to deal with those things, and uh, the fact that he's coming off a- another season last year, including the playoffs, where he pitched more than 270 innings, is this the kind of thing that uh, I mean, you go into consider to me when I I look at Wainwright and I say, okay, this is a guy that I don't. I don't have to buy him in market value because I don't have to take that shot on him when there are, when there's plenty of good pitching available. Yeah, and I think it's going to be one of those things that we have to monitor throughout throughout the offseason. Uh, right now, we don't know enough, and especially even if he comes out and pitches well in the divisional in the championship series, and we still don't know enough. Those guys that have had elbow injuries, sorry, have had elbow injuries in the past, and then continue to have them. They don't work out so well eventually. Eventually, the elbow is going to keep breaking down. And so it's, it's about that breaking point, and we can't really predict it. And so it's just sitting back and waiting for it to happen and hoping it doesn't happen on your watch. But things like Wayno in the second half, he had those that really dead-arm period. But really, outside those last three starts of the season, it wasn't anything special. He was still good, but nothing special from a fantasy perspective, especially in standard leagues. He had a 3.24 ERA, 1.21 whip. Which is which sounds good, but when you remember the way the run environment's going and how hard it is to get those runs down, that ERA and WHIP actually aren't great, especially when you pair that with the strikeouts coming down in the second half. It was Caden per nine below six and a half, and the walk rate came a little bit up above two. And so all of a sudden you're looking at instead of a fifteen twenty dollar pitcher in a standard league, you're looking at 
about like a seven dollar pitcher. This is essentially what Alfredo Simone did this year. <laughs> and no one's going to talk about how great Alfredo Simone was, but Wainwright's got the name value, and of course the first half to go along with. with go along with what he did in the second and so there's going to be a little more of a juggling act when it comes to drafts next year and deciding how much risk are you willing to take and I really if you're taking Wainwright as your first pitcher it's not something that I'd want to do I'd want to already have my pitchers in place and say you know what I can go out and spend 15 bucks on Wayno because if he's good like he was in the first half last year it's gravy but I have other guys who can you know carry the load but if you're relying on him to essentially be your ace your number two you're putting a lot of eggs in that basket on an arm that's been used quite a bit and an arm that's got velocity coming down on an arm that's already feeling discomfort. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, all those points I think are great because it, that was specifically, that was a great point. Uh, yeah, the, the strikeout rate coming down the second half, that was, a, that's, I think, a big concern. I mean, just a, a combination of things, probably there's a little bit as far as control lost or the zone percentage, uh, uh, just in general, we t- we could talk about a little bit about um, Jeff Zimmerman's uh, uh, work in the injury calculator. Think of a jigger. I always refer to it as that because I can never think exactly what it's called. But uh, you know, and <laughs> and it's. <clears throat> um, but basically, um, yeah, Wainwright is ex- exhibits enough of these little. To me, I kind of view it as a situation where coming into next season, if you're going into your drafts. Uh, and there's no if there's no news kind of or no nobody's bringing up Wainwright's health, um, that doesn't mean that it's still not an issue. And I think that that's like I, to me, like if I if I go into a draft and that hasn't been an issue, it doesn't mean that it's not still there. And that I, I'm still kind of I'm still kind of worried. But the cost is not going to be affected if at any point the Cardinals talk about it or. Um, and and they or they hold him back and they and they say why as opposed to just we're going to take it easy on him, um, you know. But if, if if there's some specific reason for a slow start to spring training for him, that's going to make people a little more wary and cautious. And you might be able to get him at a good price. But I think if it's kind of one of those things where it's all it all depends on uh, where the news and the noise are at that time, uh, and that's really going to drive a price. That's a you know that's that's which. That's and that's more so for the crowd than it is for you. Like that should really affect. I mean, regardless, these things, like you said, we're not going to have uh, until we have some real answers. We're not really going to know. But those things, these things, as they are already, are enough to make me cautious uh, until I hear some really positive reports. Otherwise, going into next season, um, it just. It's not to say that you know his career is ruined or he's going to have a bad year next year. Just that, like overall, the risk is going to continually kind of incrementally go up until something happens that seems to be pretty bad. I think. <clears throat> um, it, it, so I mean, Wainwright is probably a pitcher. Like he's probably one of these guys that folks would consider as like a top one hundred mixed league asset. I and mean, we could talk about like top fifty. You know, and I've already said like we don't generally keep pitchers uh, kind of in the top fifty. It just doesn't seem to be worth the risk. You could probably make the, the, the exception with Clayton Kershaw and maybe one or two other guys, but uh, let's exclude pitchers basically for the sake of the argument. But Wainwright is a guy that people probably could – I mean, is this – obviously, I would think that you know, based on what we discussed, he's pro- Wainwright is probably not a keeper for either of us in a top 100 scenario, yes? Yeah, I don't see really any way I'm keeping Wainwright unless for some reason – it's a long-term keeper league where I got him really cheap in 2011 when he was on the shelf all season long, and I still have a really cheap price on him. Otherwise, it's just not worth holding on to him. If you even have him but you're still considering it, let him go. Try to bring him back cheaper, and if not, find someone younger who's got less than 1,500 innings. On. <laughs> yes, I think that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. If you have a cheap price uh, or if you have a, you know, a cheap yeah, price tag attached to him, uh, then it might be is certainly worth exploring, or uh, perhaps you can you can try to trade him or something like that. But uh, overall, he doesn't seem like a great kind of top 100 keeper for you. And that's kind of what we can get into. We talk, we try to continue to talk about keepers in the off season. And I don't think either. Obviously, with the series just ended, both the Dodgers and the Nationals going home, and it's a disappointing run. But they run a run to run into obviously a couple of organizations that just in recent years have really put together some uh, impressive credentials as far as the postseason go. And it seems like both of these franchises uh, still have a ways to go as far as uh, preparation and understanding of uh, how to put together good at-bats and make adjustments to to small things and small samples in in postseason series. 
Um, but uh, Yasuo Puig is probably – obviously these teams have some – uh, some some assets that people might have questions to be about. Yasuo Puig probably isn't really one of them. I mean, he's probably a top fifty mixed keeper uh, in most scenarios. Uh, it's just probably the way people look at him. I and mean, he's he even in in uh, redraft leagues, he goes in the top fifty, and he has uh, uh, obviously this past season uh, disappointing year, I think overall in terms of the production. But the, I mean, I. In the context, he was still a pretty good earning player. Where, Jack, uh, refresh our memory, where did he finish, uh, if you don't mind, uh, in your uh, end of season values? Obviously, we don't want to reveal too much as far as the future goes, but uh, specifically with uh, with Puig, where did he finish? Yeah, he ended up being the, the 40th best player this year that's worth about $21, $22 valuation. Yeah. And it's even with the home runs coming down and things like that. It's still. He was still just so good in all the categories that you had to have him. Yeah, he. I mean, yeah, that's still a, that's still a pretty productive season. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you said, and and but obviously he didn't have a very good postseason series. Um, struck out in I think it was uh, something like seven consecutive at bats in like eight of his last nine, and he obviously had to grab some pine in that final game of the series and and took uh, took a seat in favor of Andre Athier. Um, it was it was not a good postseason for Puig, and that I mean, sometimes these things tend to stick in people's minds a little longer than they should. Um, but uh, I guess basically the question is: we've also seen a couple pretty poignant articles that have gone up either on Fangraphs or Fangraphs on Fox uh, with the uh, uh, a couple of the guys. What's wrong with Yasiel Puig's swing? That's uh, that one went up on uh, just. <clears throat> Just a bit outside. I thought I was going to stumble over that one. Uh, on, on the Fox side, and then of course Yasuo Puig's sudden problems making contact went up on the Fangraphs side. The Jeff Sullivan piece and uh, uh, a uh, Mike Petriello piece that came out shortly thereafter. Obviously, folks are going to be a little concerned with their performance. Is this the kind of thing that affects your uh, decision, say, going into an off season, or is this are, are, is this a player you're worried about going into next year? No, it doesn't really concern me. I think you think back to last year in the playoffs, and everyone remembers the NLDS series he had against Atlanta, where he was just crushing the ball and he was hitting 471. He barely struck out, things like that. But then you forget what happened in the championship series last year against the Cardinals again. <laughs> he did essentially the same thing he did this one. He struck out 10 times in 22 at bats. He didn't. He looked awful, and no one really cared. Coming this year, they just remembered he had a really good stretch in the DS and called it good and called him exciting and he got paid for and he ended up producing but the pressure was just on him this year where those other guys in the lineup weren't doing enough the Dodgers bullpen couldn't get it done and so instead of putting the scapegoat label on the bullpen for example they're going to put on the, the on the star even though he probably wasn't the biggest issue right uh, he's he still had an OPS in the playoffs this year against uh, against St. Louis about seven over 750 it was almost 775 which isn't terrible. It's it's <laughs> scary to think about. I mean, he had 8Ks and 12 at-bats, which is really bad. But when he made contact, he did the most with it. And so it's not a guy I'm concerned about. He's still a top 50 keeper. He's got that home run potential that's higher than we saw this year. It's more what we saw last year. It's He can do it on the bases. He can hit for average. He's going to be in a powerful lineup. You know, there's questions with Hanley coming back and things like that. But he's still going to be in the middle of a pretty good lineup on a team that's going to at least spend money to put players around him. And so it's hard to just say he's had one bad series. I'm throwing everything else he's done out the window. It's it's 12 at bats when right. it comes down to it, right. and I'm just not willing to weigh those any heavier really than any other 12 at bats I've seen. Yeah, that's I mean it's a great point. Obviously, you know we dealing with small samples. There's certainly no reason to start you know dismissing Puig. I mean overall Puig stars on the rise. There's no question about that. He's still a very young player. He'll be going into his. Uh, I guess it'd basically still be his age 23 season uh, or uh, age 24 season, actually, probably by next season. Uh, but still still room to grow into what will hopefully be kind of a really nice peak uh, p- potential where maybe he's a 25 to 30 home run player. Who knows? Um, but, you know, that's 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 certainly, uh, you know, a year or two down the road, perhaps. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's still a really nice player. We've seen him. I'd have to I'd have to take a look at the the heat maps to be sure, but uh, overall we've seen um, 
kind of throughout, uh, I, th- I think at least earlier in the season, he made some adjustments to where he was not, you know, chasing that stuff off the plate. But that's, I mean, that's not something that's going to go away overnight in the sense that like, even if that we've seen players that kind of get rid of a bad habit and then it kind of creeps back in as, as you know, when the fewer opportunities they have to continue to enforce it. Once you lay off stuff, uh, they don't try to get you to chase as much. They try to find another way to attack you and, and things like that. I mean, I, I think that's what's always interesting about adjustments is that players always have to continue to make them while at the same time kind of maintaining the gains that they already had. That's not an easy thing to do for a lot of players, uh, for well, for pretty much any player. So, um, yeah, there's obviously the stars on the rise. I mean, basically, there's no reason to think to to – to panic and think that Puig is a guy you need to trade or anything like that. I, I don't think anybody's really looking to do that. But uh, overall, I mean, he's he's a really impressive player that we've seen make adjustments and and uh, continues to be that type of, uh, that type of asset that I think people are going to rely on as a top fifty one. And I think the same could be said of Bryce Harper pretty easily. But obviously, I mean, he had a fantastic NLDS and kind of was one of the lone bright spots on offense for Washington. Um, I had kind of maintained, I think, probably a couple of seasons ago that I thought Harper was a better, like, kind of a bet for, like, long-term fantasy asset, a better one one than Mike Trout. And obviously that hasn't worked out in the last couple of years as far as fantasy earnings go. And we still have a way to go before, ways to go before these guys' careers are over. But, uh, you know, I think performances like this, again, it's all small sample size, but this kind of thing shows capability that he's, that he has. where does I mean is Harper kind of a to you? This is what concerned me is I saw him go in in uh, in the preseason. He would go and uh, in some cases in the first round or early in the second round uh, in fantasy leagues and mixed leagues. And this is just strictly redrafters, uh, but and it's like they're putting a lot of the cart before the horse kind of thing. It where does he fall for you? I mean, is this like a guy you still take in that or, uh, in that kind of range, or is it is? I mean, I think he's he's one of these kind of potentially polarizing figures because some people say I want to wait till it comes, or I want I want to see it before I draft it there, and it's like you can't really approach a, a commodity like Harper thinking that way. But at the same time, some folks are putting like way too much stock into what his potential is, uh, and there's really no there's really no kind of uh, mitigation of the of the floor as well. Yeah, I think that's sort of the problem is that we may have already seen his floor, and that's sort of where we're at right now. Is this year he had injury problems, he had some strikeout problems, and he still managed it to seventy three. Uh, he's got that kind of amazing talent that you just can't find uh, in a very different kind of player. But it reminds me sort of what Jay Bruce was in the fantasy sphere a few years ago. It was always trying to hit on Jay Bruce. He's got the power. It's going to come one year. You keep betting on it. Eventually, you're going to be right. You may look dumb for a couple of years, and you may <laughs> screw yourself, but that one year, you're, you might just win because you have that asset. And Harper, as far as his postseason goes, it's interesting that it's a small sample, but it's also interesting that it was sort of a continuation of what he did down the stretch for Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, He had the injury problems, but in uh, August and September, he hit 283 with 10 home runs. So it was, and he only had 13 home runs on the year, and so he really just did a bulk of his production there in the last two months. And so when you're continuing to see that, you can say, okay, maybe it wasn't that much of an aberration. You know, this is the kind of talent we've seen. He can do it. He can hit five home runs a month. He can hit 30 in a year while hitting 280. He's one of the few guys that can do it. And so you get to remember that next year he's going to be 22. This is a guy who, in most cases, would still be in double A. (laughs) Yeah, he'd still be in double A or even high A. And he's got, really, he's got 1,500 major league plate appearances under his belt. And you just never see it, and so we don't really know what to do. We have to say, well, usually this guy would be doing this really about three years from now. We'd be starting to see the idea of him being a super prospect. And so it's kind of managing those expectations while still knowing that that talent is in there. It's there, and it's lurking, and you want to be the one to get it out of him. And so it's it's not worth a first or second round pick, I don't think. I thought that was crazy this year as well. Uh, I don't even know if it's really worth a third. But he's a guy, if he's there in the fourth, you have to take him. Because at that point, he's still going to be, at worst case, if he's healthy all year, he'll be your number one or number two outfielder just because of what he can bring with both homer speed and batting average. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in the th- – well, I guess it depends. Maybe 
maybe not in a ten-team league. I don't know. I'd have to. Th- I'd, have to I'd have to definitely see kind of a, a the array of, of picks possible. But uh, I, he strikes me as a third-round pick. Maybe not in a ten-team mixed league, but like somebody in a twelve-team or deeper fifteen-team mixed league, definitely as a, as a guy I would take in the third round. And you know, pop, I, second, but sec, yeah, second round at least coming into the season seemed ludicrous. I think you can start to speculate more so. The ceiling becomes more attractive or becomes more plausible as you get into, you know, every new season for him. Um, and, you know, it, it is, it's going to, it's just going to be interesting to me. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see him kind of become a first round pick again, uh, just because I don't want to say people didn't learn their lesson. I mean, it's just, it's one of those draft stocks that I feel like belongs um, farther back. Like you said, yeah, like you said, it's kind of, it's kind of like the, Perhaps not the best metaphor to use, but the Jay Bruce phenomenon on steroids because he's a he's a better prospect in that <laughs> sense. Uh, but um, like, I mean, I love the fact that first of all, steamer projections are out. Like you, so we can, we could talk about like Puig's, for instance. I mean, they have him in about 145 games, hitting 23 homers and stealing 14 bases. That it doesn't seem overly ambitious, but perhaps a little on the high side considering what he did this season uh, and also hitting 294. Harper comes in really close to that at 277 batting average, so a little less than that, but uh, nine stolen bases and 23 home runs. Um, and so, I mean, which, first of all, is there even a, is there even a question? I, I don't know. Um, maybe these players belong about in the same, in kind of in the same tier, um, but like which one of these guys are you definitely taking first uh, or, uh, or one, which one of the head of the other are you taking definitely next year? I think I'm taking Puig ahead of Harper just because of injury concerns. I don't like the fact that Harper was out for half the, for essentially half the season, and for the most part, he didn't. He only played 120 games in 2013 as well. Yeah. And so he's got a guy with injury problems, and then consider that even the steamer projections, you think about it, it's still probably I think a floor for him with 23 homers and nine stolen bases. That's not really that ambitious for a guy that hit two 10 home runs and is probably his two healthiest months of the year. Mm-hmm. And so even with that considered, I think it's Puig. I think Puig just did it all last year as well. He backed it up. He hasn't had any injury concerns since he's been in the U.S. And so I'd rather stick with that and just know I'm going to get, or at least hope, I have a better chance of getting 160 games, 155 games. And so at least I'm getting that full season's worth of production. Because even when you factor in Harper's numbers this year, and the way we do our rankings at Fangraphs is we do them assuming a guy was in your lineup the whole year mm-hmm. and not just when he was healthy. But so if you had Harper in your lineup the whole year this year, he was a below replacement level player just because he didn't play enough. Mm-hmm. And so even with his skills, if he only plays 120 games, that's not worth that much just because of you're getting a huge gap of 30 games where I'm going to get production from another guy. If that's batting average, runs, RBIs, maybe not that many home runs or steals, but it's it's everything you can get in between and not having to go out and find that guy in the waiver wire to replace him, not having to use the DL spot, everything like that. Right. And, and when you talk about that, too, obviously you can say, well, then then I still have the opportunity to replace him. But then you don't know how. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that part of the reason that Harper is such an injury risk is because of the way he plays in a sense. He has this kind of rec- a little bit of a recklessness to him. Uh, whether it's youth or brashness or whatever it is that kind of drives him. And I mean, he's still young in the sense also, I mean, his body's still developing. You could say the same for Puig as well, but Puig, um, like you said, he's avoided the injury issues. He seems to have fewer. Basically Harper is, uh, he's, he's just, he is prone to that. I mean, it's not like I I wouldn't yet call Harper injury prone player um, simply that, um, he probably hasn't. He hasn't necessarily matured for, uh, in terms of hey, it's probably better for me to stay on the field uh, than crash into this wall for the third time in a, in a week, kind of thing. There's this. I think this kind of. Uh, I mean, there's still there's still the replacement value you can get from from uh, adding that player to your lineup. But like you said, ultimately, like the dependability of Puig. I mean, yeah, Puig seems like just kind of the more reliable pick. Uh, Harper. Se- I guess he seems to have more upside, but how much more upside does he really have than Puig? Um, it, it's hard. It's really hard to say because I mean, offense is down. Neither of these players put up spectacular numbers, um, but they were really good numbers in the context of that. And if offense were to go back up, uh, these num- these players are both capable of better numbers 
uh, even in that context as well. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, and it's kind of disappointing for me to say, like, I think I, I love Harper as a talent and as a fantasy asset, but there are just, there are too many uh, unknowns and, and the, the reward is not necessarily, uh, you know, like so likely to come through that it's worth passing up on a player like Puig. Uh, but it strikes me as a, you know, Harper is going to be a guy that again is going to go for more money generally than Puig next season, unless something, you know, kind of changes uh, between now and then. Uh, but I, uh, as far as, uh, you know, keepers that are, that are probably a little less tenuous or a lot more tenuous, I should say. Um, uh, and on a team that is advancing is of course on the Cardinals, Shelby Miller. He, and this was his first postseason start uh, on Tuesday and uh, really pitched really well until he got into the sixth inning, uh, which he kind of ran into a little bit of trouble with a couple of walks and that immediately kind of got him the hook, but, uh, he was really effective. And he was throwing 96, 97 occasionally, um, really just had an, an overall really impressive start. Part of it probably doesn't hurt that he had basically, uh, I want to say 10 days or two weeks rest. I'm not sure exactly how long, but he hadn't made a start since, uh, September 23rd. So yeah, close to two weeks rest. And it was it was a really impressive start. And I think what's really more, uh, uh, also is worth noting is um, they talked about specifically on the broadcast that since <clears throat> Justin Masterson had joined the Cardinals, he had uh, kind of worked with Miller on his on his sinker grip, and the, his pitch mix had changed uh, since he had uh, since Masterson had joined the Cardinals. And Miller really probably in the last month and a half of the season was really quite spectacular and probably in, in a lot of fantasy circles kind of overlooked as far as how well he pitched because it was a really disappointing season up until probably the final quarter of it. Um, this strikes me as a guy that, I, that I'm, st- I'm really still quite interested in, and I feel like his fantasy star may have kind of taken a tumble this year. I look at him as a player that in redraft leagues, he might be still a guy I can target, but at the same time as a talent that uh, – some folks may have soured on. Is this a guy that uh, you view as there, is there any spe- uh, specific kind of keeper plateau you view him as, or is uh, I mean, what, what does he strike you as going into next season as a kind of uh, fantasy asset? He strikes me as more of a, especially in standard leagues, 10 team, 12 team. He's sort of a fringe top 36 guy just because of the stuff he brings and what we saw him do in the first half of last year. But the issue I have with them is that what we saw the second half of last year and then most of this season may be what we're getting from him in the near future until he sort of develops and continues to figure out how to pitch to these hitters. Is that he's got the stuff, he's going to be able to strike some guys out, but that rate's not going to be all that high just because he doesn't really know how to get the right mixes right. But then he's also going to have some walk issues just because young in the control arms. But... The Babbitt's going to help just because, like I said, his stuff's so good that guys are going to have a hard time hitting it when they do make contact. And so that helps keep his whip a little more manageable compared to other guys who are going to have the same walk rates. And so having him, I'd probably put him roughly around my number, yeah, probably about number 40 right now for next year. There's just guys, I think, that have a little more demonstrated skill and the ability to continually strike guys out. And keep the whip low, which I think is the problem here with him. That's what I'm worried about. That whip was a little too high this year, especially second half of last year again, that I want to see him limit the walks like he did in the minors and he did early on last year. I want to see him do it all and show it for at least a stretch of, you know, five, six starts that maybe this has changed. He's done something different. He's made improvements instead of just coming back and saying, I'm throwing 95. I have a wicked breaking ball. We're going to see what happens. I want to see him develop as an actual pitcher instead of a thrower. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> those are those are good points. I think what yeah, what I'm intrigued about is kind of the <clears throat> excuse me, and I was looking at the pitch type peripherals from the game logs and I mean, it did seem to be the data kind of back it up that he threw the two seamer more the well, which is basically the sinking fastball. Um that it's a pitch that's kind of been probably probably kind of average for for Miller, but um, seems certainly to have gotten better results. Uh, obviously, the results improved in the second half. It makes me optimistic, at least as far as the control or concern and the results on the ground balls, that uh, that there's kind of more hope there. I think that the, the strikeouts are kind of something he can get back, but, yeah, that's the question is uh, how quickly I think those come back. Um I'm I'm optimistic. I'm kind of I, I want to say I guess that means I'm bullish. 
I forget always the difference between bullish and bearish. But uh, I, overall, yeah, it's it's. I think in a mixed league, he's still kind of that yeah that fringe starter. Um, in a fifteen team mixed league, I'd probably anticipate like kind of topping somebody toward the end if he goes maybe or maybe he goes for as many as five dollars. And in a fifteen team mixed league, it's hard to say. But uh, uh, is a, is a kind of a guy in those standard in those smaller standard mixed leagues. Uh, where he's still still kind of on the fringe. I'd be happy to take a chance on him, I think, because he's like we had had this comparison uh, earlier this season on the kind of the stars uh, between Carlos Martinez and Shelby Miller and how Martinez has had this tantalizing talent with the velocity and all that stuff. But, uh, I mean, the diversification of his pitch types is really kind of disappointed. I mean, the changeup has really been not really effective for him. Uh, he seems kind of like a fastball slider guy. Or, there's not really a whole lot going on there other than the velocity. Uh, and he's had some pl- platoon issues. And so, like, I think, obviously, Martinez has not had the same type of opportunities in the rotation. And Miller's had a lot of opportunity to experiment and get to uh, adjust and things like that. But whereas uh, you know, people kind of view, maybe if you have to make that decision between those two types of, the, the, those two pitchers, like, which one are you starting to like more and more? I think it's it certainly is is... Miller for me. I mean, a player where it's like this season was really frustrating. Uh, He seemed to really grow as the season wore on. Um, Yeah, I think we'll continue to see him do that. I mean, he's got the pedigree. I mean, so does a guy like Martinez, but Miller has the pedigree of having that breaking ball be a weapon instead of having to just rely on the velocity. And so I think that's what's important, that we're going to see if he continued to figure out how to mix those things together. And unlike a guy like Martinez, he really can't. And so he's probably getting stuck in the bullpen. A guy like Miller has the ability to do so. And so that's why he can stay in the rotation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, but, and obviously kind of, uh, we, part of the reason I was really excited to have you on is, uh, you know, you released your end of season values uh, and, uh, well, you haven't released those specifically, but you did start with the end of season catcher rankings. And those, I mean, it's kind of exciting to look at those and see where players then. I mean, first of all, I just wanted to, uh, I know when, when you spit these out, there has to be something that strikes, uh, something that strikes you. Is it, uh, whether it's a player or a specific group of players or how, you know, the arrangement of them, like what, uh, you know, how the tiers maybe kind of shake out. Uh, was there anything that's, that jumped out to you once you took a look uh, specifically at the catcher rankings? Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about catchers this year is that it's hard to find what you describe as a quote-unquote like safe catcher. <laughs> Someone who was going to hit for some batting average, maybe hit 5, 10 home runs, but he's going to mostly just be a guy that plays every day and hits 280. Those guys really weren't out there, unless you were getting the guys that were the really top tier. Of course, you know, Posey, LaCroix, Gomes, guys like that. But that's not really something you can find later. We're used to seeing some of those guys every year. And so it was kind of the fragment this year. We have the high averages are mostly up top with the guys that are also really good home run hitters, at least for catchers. And the rest of the guys are more, I'm going to hit you 15 home runs, but you're not going to love what I'm going to do on the plate with batting average. But at least I'm going to play every day or most every day. And so it was sort of a weird season to see that little fragment of, of skills separating. And so you kind of had to pick and choose what kind of strategy you want to go to instead of getting someone that just was sort of fit in and was an overall guy that was was solid but not great yeah i think um i mean salvador perez is probably he was kind of like on that cusp like he was probably like that second tier guy i mean 17 home runs especially when you play coffin stadium that's a pretty solid total but i think we i think coming into the season like i would have considered a 275 285 batting or 290 batting average a little more reliable than uh what he had put up was just 260 but like he he was really close to kind of fitting in that category but basically like you said i mean posey and posey and lacroix were the only ones who really top uh, you know and top drafted catchers like in the top half of the position uh in one catcher mixed leagues who turn out to deliver that type of value um uh, Will and Rosario, obviously a big disappointment uh brian mccann if you viewed him that way was kind of a disappointment uh uh, number of guys. Yadier Molina, um, partially that was health related, but uh, was kind of a down year in terms of power production. And uh, I, I mean, I think it's it should start to be obvious to folks that that twenty home run year was it is it eighteen? Now I have to I have to look to be sure. But uh, the season where he approached twenty home runs, yeah, I'm sorry, twenty two home runs. Uh, that that looks like it's an outlier season. I mean, I don't, I think you can kind of cap his upside at fourteen or fifteen. 
And I don't I, like I, I, I don't think he's necessarily a safe bet for uh, uh, quite close to that. Like maybe 12 to 15 is where the, the window I'd put him in for that. Um, and there's yeah, there's not really a, a that kind of LaCroix even hit only 13 home runs. Uh, he provided the great batting average and he played so often because he played some first base and, and Milwaukee. I mean, it depends on what they do at first base. Are they going to have a guy that they can depend on every day out there? I mean, that might limit his playing time opportunities. So certainly you have to be a little concerned if LaCroix gets run out there for 150 games every season. Um, but it seems to be a position that is just, I mean, we know that it's not a great position in terms of reliability for fantasy production. That's obviously why it gets discounted. There's the, the quote unquote, uh, uh, scarcity factor. Um, but more and more, and like, I, I mean, I, I kind of view these quote unquote, uh, I, I've like these rules as far as scarcity go, or, yeah, I mean, I don't view them as kind of a, uh, basically, I, I'm trying to think of how to put it. Is like to, they're kind of theories. I mean, I think that these things can always work out one way or another. The, the, every player is is kind of unique and and doesn't really um, like you're not you're not drafting statistics. Like no matter who you draft, it's not going to be automatic. I mean, obviously, so many things are different for every player at every position. Um, so it, it, what I'm trying to say is like a, a catcher is not automatically going to give you disappointing production. Uh, you can get you can get a value play at the position. He could turn out to really surprise you. There, there are a lot of elements that can go into it, but I don't really care where I'm going to get production as long as I get production. Ketridge doesn't seem like it's it's a place to get that, even if you take scarcity into account. And like, is it is it a position that you tend to avoid in your drafts, or is it a position where you target? Like, do you, if uh, does it depend on where Posey falls, or do you just say in general like I don't I don't need one of these top catchers. I'm going to take a shot that I can get the next Devin Mesoraco. And even if I don't, I want a baseline guy. Or I want a guy who's going to be replacement level or thereabouts. I want the production in other positions where I can rely on it more. Yeah, I think for the most part, it's about finding the right combination between that scarcity and that value. Where a guy like Posey in the past, you've seen Joe Maurer kind of be that poster boy of how high do you take him. Mm-hmm. And unless they're doing far and away better than what the other players that catcher are doing it's just not worth reaching uh, posey for all how great he is and actually as a real life hitter as a fantasy guy 22 homers and a 311 batting average that's good but it's not otherworldly it's not going to make or break your season mm-hmm. and so it's one of those things where if he falls to the right spot i'm going to jump on him and say okay i guess i'm going with a top catcher this year and we'll figure it out from there but for the most part they tend to get overvalued a little especially those guys at the top because they view scarcity as being more than it is. And so it's usually, for me, I'm falling with the guys that are typically ranked about 8th or 10th. Those guys tend to be there later in the draft. They tend to be more valuable than people think, even if they're not going to give you outstanding numbers. They're more. They're sometimes the annoying and ugly veterans that really you have to just have to stick with because they keep doing it over and over again and they have defined playing time. But you don't always have to have the sexy care because they're really, for the most part, there isn't one. There's <laughs> going to be a couple guys that you're happy with, but other than that, you're not going to like it. You're going to you're going to look at the waiver wire every week and, and say, "Can I do better?" And usually you can't because as much as ugly those numbers look, the rest of the catchers aren't always that great. And so sometimes, so that sort of is why you're willing to pay a little bit for one more than, let's say, just wait and say, "I'm going to take the 12th best guy and we'll see what works out in the waiver wire." It doesn't always work well because those other guys are going to be looking to. <laughs> that, I think it's great. And there are obviously, you know, yeah, the, the waiver wire options. I mean, obviously, some folks could go out and they could have they could have picked up a Devin Mesoraco in waivers. I mean, that's, you know, if you play in that type of league, that shallow league, especially in the one catcher league where he, what, he definitely wasn't drafted. And the Derek Norris's and players like that. I mean, those things certainly pop up. I mean, they pop up at a lot of positions. Like you said, I mean, it's just um, – a lot is going to depend on your league setup, but, uh, you know, especially if it's one catcher versus two, but yeah, just the, the production is just not that enticing. And there's anywhere from like those, those seventh to 12th catchers, uh, or, uh, I mean, where that's, there's re the rebound candidates and, and things like that. Like there's just, there's, I'd be interested to test to see like what the data is as far as consistency and production from year to year, like, but you know, for players by position, but like catcher seems like it would strike me as at least reliable in terms of that simply because of the rigors of the position. 
in terms of health, I mean, that's already been done. You know, the, it, basically, I guess it would be the same thing in terms of health and reliability. Uh, we, it's, it's already we, we know that it's not uh, catchers are the least reliable, reliable in terms of uh, year to year health. Uh, and they basically average, uh, I think this is something Baseball HQ discovered, basically, you know, like as far as the top tier options and catcher, there was never like a player who could put up more than like three healthy seasons in a row uh, or something to that effect. And it, that's just kind of on average, certainly players who defy that, that who kind of defy that uh, quote unquote rule of thumb. But po- yeah, Posey, I mean, he needs to come at a bit of a, uh, I guess, discount relative to what other people value him at. I mean, he can certainly provide you with an advantage, but it's not necessarily going to be in a great one. And that's it, what's interesting to me is, I mean, uh, just there were, kept, like, there's there seem to be these uh, catchers that just more, more so out of, that come out of nowhere. And like, you know, Eno had a great, you know, identified Mesoraco as one of his uh, sleepers and he's looking for kind of maybe who, who's that going to be for him next season. And um, there's certainly going to be some other candidates is it's, it's kind of a little bit more of a late breakout position. Are there, are there anybody, is there anybody that you like going into next year, I guess, that's kind of a, um, you know, a, case you don't want to give away the farm or anything like that and you say there are, you know there are no sexy catchers you clearly haven't seen henry blanco in a thong uh but i'm curious if there, if there are any catchers that you know you kind of have your eye on next season for one reason or another as kind of these guys who can who can deliver that kind of value for you that you so where it's it's easier to uh to hold out on not drafting one of the top options i think for me that guy right now without having gone through everything and doing all full projections for next year, it might be Osmani Grandal, just because of the pedigree. Mm -hmm. He's one of those guys that, of course, was the top prospect. And so even maybe he got rushed a little, and especially after the trade to San Diego when they needed to sort of maybe prove that those guys were worth what they got, was sort of push him up. And he struggled, but he's shown some power this year, even while in Petco, and that is huge. And so (laughs) maybe he doesn't hit for the highest average, but maybe he's actually going to hit for some power, and he's going to be sort of a fixture in that lineup for the most part. And so there's other guys like that you could see. Like Maybe you could expect a bounce back here from Jason Castro. Uh, if you're willing to bet on health, you bet on guys like Wilson Ramos. So it, de- it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for someone to break out, someone to bounce back, or someone to stay healthy. There's those sort of three different roads to go around. We look for those keepers and those sleepers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, uh, Grandal is an interesting case to me, I think, too. It's, I think that's somebody... Eno's blog will be covering here uh, if his hasn't gone up yet, uh, and he is—he's definitely a guy that I will have my eye on. Yeah, and I think um, I think that there are a number of interesting candidates. I do think that uh, a player like Travis Darno certainly—I um, mean, I think that he's—I don't want to say like a full-on breakout is coming, but I think relative to what he produced this season, perhaps would be considered one. Because uh, there was certainly a difference in his production uh, pre and post uh, call up this past year, or the demotion and then call up, uh, and it seemed to be kind of related to his his aggressiveness. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's there are going to be some interesting candidates. I mean, certainly uh, uh, Ramos is interesting. It remains interesting. Um, I, I guess I find it interesting to see also what, what people are going to think of Matt Weeders coming back from Tommy John surgery. Um, and Jeff, Jeff Zimmerman's article on that was, uh, was quite uh, interesting. I think it, it, he kind of speculates that Weeders will go for a bit of a discount because he doesn't expect his power to be affected. Is that something I don't want to you know say like you can flat out call out. How do you view Weeders? Like, is he, is he a guy that you're kind of leery of or you, or, or yeah, or do you think that enough people will be leery of him that you can kind of approach him as a guy that you might be happy with targeting as well? Yeah, I think he's going to be, he's going to end up being a target of mine. Uh, I'm more interested to see, you know, Jeff's looked at the fact of what is going to be affected after Tommy John. I'm more interested in where he's going to come back, if he's going to be back at the start of the season or not. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll keep my eye on with him. Uh, more than looking for signs in spring training, we're looking for, oh, he's hitting a home run in spring training, so obviously the power's back or things like that. <laughs> he's another guy that had the pedigree, kind of failed as an offensive prospect for the most part, at least fantasy-wise, but last year before he got hurt, looked really good. And so people might just forget that and might just say, well, he didn't play last year, I don't really remember anything about him. 
And so he'll probably go for a deep discount that I'm going to be looking for. Instead of a guy that in the past was maybe looked at as a top five catcher, he's going to be more of the fringe 10 to 12 range, I think, when we come to drafts next year. And so that, that's quite a discount on a guy that, if he was healthy the entire year, probably would have still been that number five, six guy going off the board. And so I, I like what I'm going to see there. More just going to see, is he healthy? Is he ready to go and to start the year? Because otherwise, I really don't want to draft a catcher to put on the DL. It's just not necessarily worth that spot that I'm going to spend for the first two weeks, month of the season. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I think, yeah, a lot yeah, a lot of it's going to depend on where he is health-wise. He's, he's, he's going to be an interesting a- uh, asset to kind of analyze uh, as spring training uh, gets rolling. And... Um, I think that uh, I mean just just in general the catching landscape is just it's something with uh, you know as offense comes down as as the rigors of the position uh, specifically and as uh, health becomes a greater concern I mean, it seems like it seems like more players uh, go on the DL every year but it's I mean uh, the reality is is it's uh, that's pretty much commonplace these days uh there are just a lot of players that always go on the DL <laughs> it's 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 just something that we're going to have to deal with um Catchers seem to be. I mean, it's 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 a position where you you can afford to have like the least amount of patience with it uh, uh, as as far as things like that go. It's certainly not a guy um, such as Weeters or is really worth stashing uh, on your disabled list as far as catchers go. Um, but um, it, I mean, it's it, it'll be interesting. I think just in general to see how uh, the the catcher rankings come around next season. I mean, just I, I'm 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 excited to see uh, those things in, in a number of respects. Um, and I think that uh, just um, we, we've had a lot of interesting blogs go up on individual catchers. I think folks can uh, can rush over to Rotograss and check those out if they have not already. Um, be looking forward to talking about that. Zach. I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, this episode, episode number 173. I would like to have you on again, probably in the off season, talk about uh, obviously more position rankings will be coming out. Uh, it, it just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of plan to do a position uh, a position a week, and then when starting pitchers and outfielders come out, we might take a couple of weeks to get into those. Yeah, that's what we've done in the past. Uh, in the past, we've always just done the infield, then the outfield, then the pitching. But uh, I haven't decided we might just mix it up this year just to keep things interesting, to see what we can throw in there and maybe spread things out a little bit. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see you know, kind of what, uh, what comes about as far as the analysis goes once you know, the, uh, the, the rankings of each, each position come out. Because, it, like I said, I mean, just, just the rankings list alone provides some, some really cool fodder for folks, uh, and, and uh, it's interesting to see what players earn, how they, comp- how they stack up against each other, uh, how much time missed is meant to each player, uh, and be looking forward to talking about a lot of that stuff. And thank Zach very much for coming on. also look forward to eventually kind of talking about the player valuation method again and things like that. Uh, so very excited to have Zach on and look forward to talking to him more about that stuff in the future. Again, this has been episode number 173. I am your host, Nicholas Minix, and this has been The Sleeper and the Bust. Sleeper and the Bust.